the medieval period through the Reformation. I really don't spend a lot of time on today, although there's more stuff we could have looked at about what folks are saying today. But primarily, just trying. What I'm trying to get us to is there's this. Uh, remember when we started? There's this fable that uh, there's a church council that was responsible for uh, approving of the scriptures. You have one of those, bro? And uh, that never happens. And when it does happen, we're almost to the 1600s. And when it does happen, it happens in response to the Reformation, not in response to deciding what Bible is correct or not. It is a uh, reaction from the uh, Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Protestants to divide themselves from one another. And so, you know, you have things take a little twist and and that's the first time we'll see a council of any kind that says this is what we call the bible so prior to that one of the things we've been trying to build on is that from the time the letters left the pins of the apostles they functioned as scripture in the church they were fulfilling that role and continued to fulfill that role moving down through history uh, and then un- until we obviously we're going to see really from about well from what is it five I want to say five forty for some reason in my head but the we're gonna we're gonna begin to see a decline a, a mixture of uh, the church becoming powerful and then instead of holy men desiring to teach the word, you have men who want power who come to the position. And uh, uh, we start to see a decline in the church into <clears throat> what many call the Dark Ages or the Medieval Period, which uh, has its turnaround at the Reformation. Uh, again, you know, God in His grace bestowing light to pull men from the darkness and that leads us to today ultimately and uh, but as we look at that idea and obviously we're not going real in depth in church history just trying to give an overview what's going on who's saying what what is their view of scripture how did they look at it in their time and how did they use it how did how did they utilize the scripture and so as we go forward <clears throat> Hopefully we can set that groundwork, and then next time we'll we'll uh, move on out of uh, uh, church history to uh, maybe a little bit on canonization, and then <coughs> uh, transmission of the text. So, so we'll start today in the medieval period. Uh, just as a as a brief note, uh, you'll notice uh, in the notes uh, church history. The medieval church comprised the period from about 600 to 517. You know, dates in history are just up to whoever whoever's book you're in. So it just gives you a, a, a generality. You guys okay with that? Because some guys will say from 350 to, you know, 14-something, you know, it's just numbers. But the, give you a general idea of the... The collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century led to a vacuum in Western Europe. So you have the collapse of the Roman Empire, in essence, and the rise, roughly, 
I would agree at that time of the power of the church. Prior to that, you do have a church. You have Constantine was before that. You have issues that have begun to creep creep into the church, but really until the power vacuum is created by the collapse of the empire, you don't really see this huge swing (coughs) uh, like we'll see uh, maybe as we look tonight. Um, The political, economic, social, moral, intellectual structures of an immense civilization no longer existed. Undeniably, the institutionalized Roman Catholic Church filled this vacuum. The papacy gained legitimacy, monasticism became entrenched, Islam exploded across the Mediterranean, and the Crusades resulted. As the church grew in influence and power, though, it became corrupt and ineffective. That's the story of the medieval church. So basically from that period of time, that's what's going on kind of around everything. We've we now moved, <clears throat> obviously, several generations from Christ. The apostolic fathers are all gone. The early church fathers are all gone. We're, we're now multiple generations down the road. And uh, we begin to see the attack of Satan change. <clears throat> Initially, the attack of Satan was in the form of persecution, right? The take a pinch of incense, declare Caesar as Lord, and you're a good citizen of Rome. If you don't do it, we'll throw you to the lions. So you have persecution. But what happened under persecution is the church spread. And it became more popular. When we look at Peter, when he preaches the first sermon, how many get saved? 3,000. That's pretty good, right? The Easter Sunday, we had a couple. So um, 3,000, that's pretty good. That's, that's a, a pretty good uh, first message coming to the Lord. The next time, 5,000. You have 10,000 people, you know, roughly uh, 8,000 and change. Uh, what building in the ancient world housed that for, uh, for a church building? Well, they didn't have the come up with an idea because persecution scattered them. So those 8,000 now become how many more thousand as the flames of persecution drive the growth of the church? <coughs> I think... Satan changes his tactics, and uh, you see him beginning to infiltrate the church rather than persecute the church, and that's what brings us into uh, the Dark Ages. Not to say that the Dark Ages or the medieval period didn't have solid men of God. Obviously, every every um, epoch of time has its men of God, its move of the Spirit, you know, those things were still going on. But but uh, to a large degree overall, they're struggling with uh, being able to, to continue uh, the success that began the church in the early days. Uh, of course, in terms of numbers, you have vastly more numbers. But you also, in the vacuum of power, have the desire <clears throat> to see the church have authority rather than the scripture and then that really leads to a lot of problems um so we want to really try to to affirm the idea that scripture has its own authority and we are to align ourselves with it not the other way around i'll have authority over it the other thing that happened is rome was the seat of power so rome became a natural place where the bishop of rome suddenly starts to look like more important than the rest of the bishops and uh, eventually leads to the papacy, right? 
which is <coughs> where we see our, our first guy that we'll talk about tonight, which is uh, Gregory, the the first pope. So, uh, Protestant church historians generally maintain the institutionalized Roman Catholicism began with Gregory's appointment as Bishop of Rome in 590. Uh, though he refused the title of Pope, administratively he organized the papal system of government that characterized the entire medieval period. Thus, all the major bishops, uh, bishoprics of the West looked to him for guidance and leadership. Uh, he also standardized the liturgy and theology of the burgeoning uh, Roman Church doctrines such as the veneration of Mary, purgatory, early form of transubstantiation, praying to departed saints, all found their beginnings in his writings. So so from the time we get uh, to Gregory, <coughs> moving forward, we start to see, uh, obviously, some of those same things that we saw really begin to form the canon of Scripture in dealing with heretical issues. Now you start to see those things taking place but now the authority structure has changed you guys understand what i mean so now the authority has become the man not the book in which case we're no longer governed by the book now we're governed by what the man says and that's going to perpetuate <clears throat> but still gregory had a view of scripture uh, gregory the great wrote a commentary on job in which he refers to hebrews 12 6 as scripture, the term used for divinely inspired writings of the New Testament, uh, he being the first uh, medieval pope set the tone for succeeding generations as he epitomized preceding ones. So in his writings, <clears throat> one of the things he discusses is, is granting to the scripture. Again, this is prior to any official church-sanctioned announcement of canonization. He's just looking to what the church has been using and declares those things scripture uh <clears throat> and again we also see maybe as we look a little bit at canon next time we see that uh really the the four gospels the writings of of paul find quick uh ground in terms of use within the church <clears throat> really the general epistles and some of uh, john's epistles are what or what takes a little bit of time. Remember last time I think we talked about five books that that were not accepted into Athanasius's uh, canon, which is pretty close. We had 22 books in the in the third fourth century. You <clears throat> you were using 27, but some, not everybody was in agreement on those last five. So, and again, that declaration from the church doesn't happen until 1500s. Uh, Louis Gusson summarized his view of Scripture. <clears throat> this is a quote from him. Of the single exception of Theodore of Mopsustia, that philosophical divine whose numerous writings were condemned for their Nestorianism <clears throat> in the Fifth Ecumenical Council, it has been found impossible to produce in the long course of the eight first centuries of Christianity a single doctor who has disowned the plenary inspiration of the scriptures, unless it be to the bosom of the most violent heresies which have tormented uh, the Christian church, that is to say among Gnostics, Manichaeans, Anomians, and the, uh, well, the Muslims, I don't know how to say it, Mohammedans. <coughs> so his idea is, with the exception of the heretics, everybody agreed 
was in agreement. Scriptures were inspired to the Word of God, and were were basically running off of the list of of Athanasius. So we're looking at that uh, reality, even now at, at in the fives in six hundreds. <clears throat> Anselm of Canterbury. Now we're in uh, one thousand thirty three to eleven o nine. In his famous Cur dos Homo, <clears throat> Anselm continued to state the orthodox view of inspiration when he wrote, The God-man himself originates the New Testament and approves the Old. And as we must acknowledge him to be true, no, so no one can dissent from anything contained in these books. As Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm addressed the question of authority in another treatise when he said, What is said in Scripture, I believe without doubting. Of course. So even then, you still have the same attitude taken from church leadership <coughs> that the scriptures were functioning as scriptures. Aside from a council, nobody thought yet that we needed a council to decide what were what's already been authoritative for the last eight hundred years now, right? We got we got eight hundred plus years of of history utilizing the scriptures that have been passed down from the apostles and they were still functioning even as they had then <clears throat> when we come to uh, the Victorines, now we're in the 12th century they're uh, Christian teachers in the Abbey of St. Victor in Paris they followed the historical and literal approach to biblical interpretation uh, Victorine representatives included Hugh, Richard and Andrew and their respect for Scripture was based on the belief of their predecessors that the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God. And again, we're still functioning. <clears throat> we're still functioning with the group of of books that you have with you today. Still, say it's not. It's not like one of these guys was using the Gospel of Thomas. We're still talking about the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? We're still talking about the New Testament as we see it today. <coughs> Thomas Aquinas in 1200 he uh, he uh, this is one of his quotations the foundations for the late medieval theology uh, were laid by such outstanding scholars as a categorizer Peter Lombard and the encyclopedist Albert the Great but the greatest spokesman of scholasticism was Thomas Aquinas who clearly set forth the orthodox doctrine of inspiration in a Summa Theologica, Aquinas states the author of Holy Scripture is God. Although he asks the question of senses of Scripture, he assumes the inspiration of both Old and New Testaments. He concurred with the traditional view that the Scriptures are divine revelation and without error. So, working uh, our way through just a sampling of those guys. <clears throat> One of the other things I wanted to do, just take a quick cursory look at was the church councils during that time. So we've had talk, you hear people all the time talk about, well, this is what was decided at the council of Nicaea. Man, they lay a lot of stuff down at the council of Nicaea that never happened. Just because a bunch of people say it don't mean it happened. You know that? I actually used to teach. Well, this is what happened. Constantine got together. He said, hey, we need to figure out what, where's, who's using what books of the Bible. And so he called for the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea got together and decided, and here we have our canon of Scripture. Yeah, that never happened. Never happened. I heard it from someone who heard it from someone who just continually perpetuated the lie. 
So I thought we'd look at, again briefly, I'm not talking about everything that the councils talked about, but we're just going to look at some of the main points. Why did these councils meet and what was the purpose? And what we'll see as we work our way through is never was the purpose to, to have authority over Scripture. Scripture maintained the authority it had from the writing of the apostles. Does that make sense to everybody? So hopefully by the end of tonight, you'll still understand that. So the first council of Nicaea is called by <clears throat> professing Christian emperor Constantine, who decided to unite the church and solidify his empire. The council affirmed the Trinity, upheld the full deity of Christ as eternal and of the same nature as Father. Uh, the council also formulated the famous Nicene Creed and a condemnation of the heresy of Arianism, which denied Christ's deity and divided Christendom. Arianism is basically Jehovah Witness. Uh, Arianism is the same thing. Jesus isn't God. Only God, only the Father's God. Jesus is a created being. You know, just like any Jehovah Witness ever come to your door, basically is the teaching of Arianism. That's what the Council of Nicaea <coughs> came together to deal with. Not what books should be in the Bible. In addition, Nicaea set forth numerous canons. That means rules. They set forth numerous rules that claim to be universally binding on the whole church. <clears throat> what are these rules? Bishops should only be appointed by other bishops. <clears throat> uh, excommunication is only to be done by a bishop. That bishops have jurisdiction over their own geographical areas. Likewise, it is before all things necessary that they, who convert to the church, should profess in writing that they will observe and follow the dogmas of the Catholic. Now, at the time, this is not really what we see as Catholic. Catholic means universal. <clears throat> of the Catholic and Apostolic Church. So, Council of Nicaea was never about picking books of the Bible. Council of Nicaea was dealing with Arianism. They come up with the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> which is based on the Apostles' Creed. It's the earliest of the church councils. Uh, they start discussing government structure, right? Who's the? What is a bishop? A bishop sits over a geographical area. So when we talk about guys like, what's the fellow I was telling you guys about that died? Uh, how did I lose it? Because there's only one guy who ever died in Scripture, or not in Scripture, in church history. But he's a famous old guy. Come on, help me out. Nobody, huh? What did he do? He died. Got burned at the stake. Uh, early, way early. But a disciple of John. Why can't I think of his name? Like John. Polycarp? You know, Polycarp. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Lord, have mercy on my soul. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Digging them. So Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna. So basically, he's like the pastor over the pastors of that geographical area. So if somebody got out of whack, he was responsible for getting them on track or to deal with it or the final say in, or in, in orders of church discipline. Now that's in the 300s. That's just, you know, fourth century, <coughs> pretty early, three generations, four generations from Christ. So <coughs> you've got, you've got, uh, um, and, and remember, Polycarp is a is a disciple of John the Baptist. So it's at the time of Polycarp, that's just one generation out. 
you with me? <clears throat> so Polycarp, uh, bishop, and the council of Nicaea, they decide what are, what's the what's the rule for bishops? How are we going to appoint them? Who gets to pick a bishop? You know, I'm sure there were plenty of guys becoming self-appointed bishops, right? Stand up and say, I have decided I'm the bishop of Buell. Well, that's great. But according to the Council of Nicaea, only another bishop could lift up a bishop. I have a question before we go on to that next part. But sure. So if they all believe that this was scripture, and they're reading this, and they believe what it says is a scripture, are they saying they believe what it says, or they just believe it's scripture? Because how do they... How do they deviate from what Christ was intending and what how a Christian should live to turn into this Catholic church like <clears throat> well initially when it starts it's it's not all bad initially when it starts it and what we see in church history most often <clears throat> people uh, just take it just takes a couple of degrees right to end up in a totally different relationship so they just you know make a Poor interpretation, bad observation leads them to some other concepts. Next thing you know, they're 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 pretty far down the track. Really, the division of Catholicism and Protestantism. There's a lot of big divisions, but the primary one in my mind is that for a Protestant, you are <clears throat> justified by faith, and the Catholic, you're justified by works. By works Those are yeah. pretty okay. dramatic differences. So, so, um, but. In the end, we're still talking about the same Jesus. You know, there's some weird things, obviously, that creeped in, but that crept in because of the authority change. Right. Yeah, so, right here. <clears throat> so as the authority changes, Scripture loses its validity. So they still believe it. Oh, we believe it. The Catholics will still tell you they believe Scripture, but they don't know what it says. Right. Yeah, I think we see the same thing happening even today. Mm -hmm. Well, for With, sure. Like homosexuality and oh, yeah. churches... And churches saying, yeah, oh, yeah, it's okay, you know, or uh, Rob Bell saying, uh, you know, we're going to, we don't need to be governed by a 2,000-year-old document. We should be, it should be flexible. In fact, I was listening today, uh, I don't know what I was listening to, and it was dealing with the law and the, the uh, Constitution, and I heard some of the same things. Well, we shouldn't be governed by a 200-year-old document today. You know, Constitution should be more flexible and, and open to uh, easier uh, manipulation rather than doing, uh, you know, uh, amendments to the Constitution. So that same concept people apply to the Bible. Well, the Bible, <coughs> that's so old, we have to update it. And in order to update, we don't really see things like they saw back then. But their issue is, when I do that, what, am I, what I'm really saying is I have authority over the Scripture, not the other way around. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So okay. when that changes, then even though you can affirm this is Scripture, it's hold on changing your life or uh, uh, addressing your issues diminishes because now the real issue is you. Right. You know, what you like or what you think or <clears throat> or what becomes popular. And it only takes, uh, uh, you know, a little while for people to start to, to see the Pope is infallible. And now now you're bound. You know, the Pope before you said this. So either you have to deny the whole deal or you figure out how to try to right the ship. So this is, but this is basically where it all started to yeah. shift to that authority. Medieval period, we started moving into dark times 
We're going to see the division of the church between East and West. <clears throat> the division of the church is going to be between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox or Greek Orthodox. The issue is going to be a pope and a council. Mm-hmm. So the, the Western church, the Roman church, functions under the leadership of a pope. The Eastern Orthodox <coughs> functions under a council of, I don't know if what they call them, bishops or, or what have you, an, an authority <coughs> within the church. But both see the same thing. Both say they have authority over Scripture. The church has the authority. <coughs> not. And until the Reformation steps up and gets things back on track, you, you kind of see the devil winning. You know, gaining some ground. Uh, First Council of Constantinople convened by Emperor Theodosius to unite the church. Well, it's interesting that we have to unite the church again 60 years later, right? Uh, Reaffirmed the Nicene Creed, proclaimed the deity of the Holy Spirit, united uh, the Eastern Church, which was divided by the Arian controversy. Remember, that was the issue with Nicaea. Theodosius is said to have founded the Orthodox Christian state. Arianism and other heresies became legal offenses. Uh, Sacrifice to pagan gods was forbidden, and paganism almost outlawed. The practices of Theodosius I were later codified by Emperor Theodosius II into Theodosian law. This was later superseded by the Justinian Code, which added the novella, that provides a classic formula for the relation of church and state, in which the church would take care of religious matters and the state civil matters. <clears throat> Again, no mention of uh, the church <coughs> deciding what 27 books were in the New Testament. They, because the 27 books were functioning already. It's not until the church starts to try to to make distinction between three separate entities that that declaration gets made. You guys tracking with me? The Council of Ephesus, 431. Ephesus condemned Nestorianism. I didn't mention that before. Nestorianism says that Christ has two natures and two persons. So it's kind of a schizophrenic ideal, meaning the human nature of Christ and a... Uh, divine nature of Christ were not the same person. They were different persons. The human Christ uh, is the one who dies on the cross. The divine Christ doesn't die on the cross. A lot of weird things in the Storianism. Uh, again, as we as we try to rectify the things that the Bible says, we begin to develop doctrines. You guys understand where doctrines come from? In the last class, we talked a lot more about the doctrines, but <clears throat> the idea of of what what how does it look when the scripture says Jesus is fully man and fully God? Now now how do I reconcile that concept in my mind? So Nestorianism was one of the ideas. Well he's made up of two people at his baptism, the divine Jesus takes over. You guys heard of this before? <clears throat> so the human Jesus takes a back seat until crucifixion, human Jesus dies, divine Jesus doesn't really there's a division what the Bible teaches doesn't have anything to do with the division. Jesus is one person, 
fully God, fully man. And so that's what they're, when they're battling Nestorianism, <clears throat> it's a heresy that they're saying, no, 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 that's not how it is. Here's, we're affirming what Scripture teaches. Okay, that's, but the Scripture they're using is the 27 books we're talking about. Right? And they're functioning uh, <coughs> in some measure authoritatively in the church still at that time. So, uh, the, anyway, that's the council at Ephesus. Uh, they also concluded that Mary was truly the mother of God, the God-bearer, which becomes an issue, the one who gave birth to the person Jesus, who is God and man, uh, extracts from Cyril of uh, Tenestorius in session one. <clears throat> this was the sentiment of the Holy Fathers. Therefore, they ventured to call uh, the Holy Virgin the mother of God, not as if the nature of the word or his divinity had its beginning in the virgin, but because of her was born the holy body with a rational soul to which the word <clears throat> being personally united is said to be born according to the flesh. So again, councils are trying to deal with how do we, what, what are we trying to say about this thing? The, who's Mary? Uh, is she the mother of God? Depends on how you're defining the mother of God. You know, God existed long before Mary. <clears throat> is, is she the mother of the Christ who is the word or God made flesh sure she gives birth to the child Jesus right these are the things that they're trying to define because people have questions people are are trying to comprehend and understand the things that are going on in the church and for better or for worse the church is trying to define its beliefs codify what do we believe? What does Scripture teach? Does that make sense? But they're not going by the Scripture. <clears throat> no, they're, they, are, they are trying to interpret the uh, best they can from their understanding what Scripture talks about. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we make bad, right? Still today, can you turn on uh, <clears throat> some Christian station and hear wacky stuff? Mm -hmm. And same Bible... How'd you come up with that? Well, they're applying different rules of interpretation, right? They're they're they uh, that's the only way that you can can get to some of those ideals, and <clears throat> so the church is growing in its understanding, but that requires the church to go through these issues with the variety of different doctrines. <clears throat> then you have the Church of or the Council of Chalcedon, four fifty one. This is called by Emperor Marcion to deal with the Eutychian uh, heresy that merged the two natures of Christ, uh, making a logically incoherent combination of infinite with finite nature. So again, they're trying to deal with the two-nature idea of Christ. How is he man? How is he God? So these are still things that, that the church wrestles with today. We're, not that we have the perfect solution. You start to sit down and think about how does that work and... But the point is, that's what they were called to deal with. Um, of the 500 bishops present, only two were from the West. So this is primarily the Eastern Church meeting here at the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, and so they, they talk about several of the rules. You can take a look at it. <coughs> the Council also asserted its authority in excommunicating Bishop Dioscorus. Declaring on account of your disregard of the divine canons and your disobedience to the holy ecumenical synod, you are de 
deposed from the episcopate and made a stranger to all uh, ecclesiastical order. So now you start to have the fight between East and West. So the East starts to kick out the bishops of the West. The West starts to kick out the bishops of the East. Two sides of the church start fighting. <clears throat> remember, if you remember back, Constantine's going to move <coughs> the capital of Rome to where? Huh? Madagascar? No. Alexandria? Nope, not Alexandria. Today, <clears throat> it's uh, Istanbul. Then it was called Constantinople, because he liked to name it after himself. It becomes the seat, and it becomes the seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So now you have two capitals, Rome wanting power in Rome, Constantinople wanting power in Constantinople. You have two, at some times there are two popes in existence fighting over who's really supposed to be the pope. <coughs> All of this is beginning to boil over because in the end the church is still made up of broken people who act like broken people and do dumb things even then as today um, so anyway that kind of talks about it. then you have the second council of Constantinople <clears throat> Constantinople the uh, second convoked by Emperor Justinian issued 14 anathemas the first 12 directed at Theodore Mopsuesta. Um, so you see, again, the continuing fighting. They also affirm the uh, uh, ever-Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. So the perpetual virginity of Mary. And again, that's not in Scripture. That's just their decisions, right? This is. So they confirm that she was a virgin forever? Forever, yes. Forever. Forever. So that Catholic teaching... No Catholic teaching states that that Mary was a virgin forever. Jesus had brothers from another mother? Jesus had brothers from Mary. Oh. <coughs> so, even though she gave birth to other brothers, she was still a virgin. Mm. That's why I can't like wrap my mind around how far they get away from what Scripture says if they're declaring it Scripture. Right. But as soon as they moved authority... <laughs> From scripture to men, yeah, then okay. you can override. Then you start having. So instead, you're sitting around talking about an idea. Maybe you start in scripture. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, and then, well, how long was she a virgin? Well, is she the mother of God? Well, is what? How should should we pray to her? What? All these things have nothing to do with the Bible. Oh, but wait, look, he had brother. Like they don't go any farther. Yeah. <laughs> no, because again, the authority is that group of men sitting around a table. Uh, deciding how how these things are supposed to work. And then endless councils fighting back and forth with one another over what's going on. Now, the point of me showing you all of these councils, there's like three more pages, and I'm not going to dive into them all, but I want you to see none of them are to pick 27 books of the New Testament. So you're welcome to peruse them at your leisure. None of them were were designed to say, well, here's the Bible. Why? Because the Bible was already functioning as the Bible from the pens of the apostles. It's not until you have clear distinction between the Reformation, the Protestants, the 
Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox that each one of those groups has a council to say, here's the books of the Bible. And the only reason they did that is because the Catholics added the Apocrypha to make distinction between themselves and the Protestant Church. Mm. Otherwise, they were all using the same thing. So there's this story out there, right? That, that Here's how we get our Bible. There's all these groups fighting over doctrine and fighting over things, and, and the one that wins picks the books. But that's just not what you're going to see in the councils. You're going to see plenty of fighting, plenty of bickering, plenty of struggling their way through different kinds of teachings, both. <clears throat> and you can definitely see from the beginning a strict adherence to the Scripture, to less, to less, to less, to less, which was exactly what we read in the Old Testament, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What happened to Israel? Strict adherence to the, to the law, and then by the time of Josiah, they don't even know what the Bible is. By the time of Josiah, they find a book, they say. We found a book behind the altar in the temple. Oh, we, what is it? Oh, well, let's read it. So they read it and they go, oh my gosh, this is the law. And we're a mess because we're not doing any of these things. You get what I'm saying? So what we see is, oftentimes in history, mankind is given light. Then mankind, in, in whatever period of time finds himself back in darkness and so what does God do? He brings out the light again. He's he's constantly he doesn't leave us without a witness. Okay? He doesn't leave he didn't leave Israel without a witness. When when Israel had no more prophets, what did they have? Scripture, right? Scripture's the witness. You're accountable if you don't pick it up. The United States is not going to bode well when they stand in judgment before Christ. <clears throat> because when they stand in judgment before Christ, they're going to say, wasn't my word available? Well, the answer to that question is yes. There's a Walmart on every stinking block, and they have the Bible last I checked in it. And then you have Gideons who put a Bible in every single motel, hotel, you know, imaginable. So there's, there's no shortage of the word of God. If you didn't go look at it, God's going to say, that's not on me. I left you a witness. You didn't care. So you wanted to stay in your rebellion, right? So God has provided a witness. And what we see, <clears throat> the important thing that I want us to get to as we move toward, let's go toward the Reformation. What we see happening in the Reformation is that very thing. What occurred? The same thing that occurred with Josiah. What was that? Going back to the Scriptures. Back to scripture. What's a script? Yeah, that's right. Sola scriptura comes out of that, which means <clears throat> moving back to the authority of scripture. So when Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis on the door of the nobody, huh? Church worms? No, no. no. Is that too far? <laughs> <coughs> it'll come to me in a minute. Anyways, when he does that, what's his, what his cry is, <coughs> let's get away from all these weird doctrines we've been developing over the last thousand years, and let's get back to the Scripture. Let's get back to the authority of Scripture. So, But again, one of the things that you're going to hear people say is, all oh, the Bible, you know, it, it, all these books, the way they pick books. No, the books started functioning in Scripture right out the gate. Day one, Paul sent a letter to the Ephesians. 
What happened? It was used as Scripture. Did Paul know he was writing Scripture? Yep. Paul knew he was writing Scripture. He told him he was writing Scripture. He had authority because he was an apostle called of God to deliver to us the Word of God. So he does so. And as he does so, and, and, and as he and as it, it, it functions in that way, it continues to function in that way all the way through church history. Now, later on in church history, we're using it less. Yeah? In fact, we start burning guys at the stake because they want to change the language. Because remember, in the Catholic Church, what language was the Bible in? Latin. Latin. Jerome is going to make <coughs> the Bible uh, available in Latin, but... People speak other languages, right? Other than Latin. So to get it into a common man's tongue, that's the desire. Right? We want to put this in a common man's tongue. So Wycliffe comes along and says, we need to make this available. Why? Because the Bible's going to change things. He wants to make it available for people to read. And Protestant Reformation makes that possible. Makes that possible. You have that division. You have a move back towards... The authority of scripture and we see the light again blossoming in the nations as people hold fast to the word of god every revival ever taken place in the history of mankind has been founded on scripture strict adherence to what the bible says moving back to the bible bowing the knee before the the things that it teaches the christ that the scriptures reveal right so so the, that's how these things take place, which, <clears throat> you know, men now in the 21st century, we can start saying, oh, well, yeah, the, the, it could have been any, it could have been 39 books instead of 27. Well, couldn't it? There was not 39 books. There's 27. That's what they had. That's what they were working through. With the exception of five of those books, that's kind of, through history, people uh, waned on whether or not they could understand how James fit together with Paul. Anybody ever had that struggle? What's James say? What? Why would they have a problem with James? What's James say? Show me your faith by your... Yeah, what did Paul say? We're saved by... Not by... So they're trying to figure out how do those two fit together. It took them a while. Right? It was easier to say, maybe this one don't belong. I don't know. I don't know if I'm into James right now. I'm, I know I'm into Paul, right? But I'm not sure I'm into James. But as man studied and looked, they realized, you know, there's a lot of great things in James. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm not quite understanding what it is James is saying. And as they begin to take closer look, they realize, oh, wow, look at that. It is in line with what Paul is teaching. And then there was a unanimous concept of yeah james is in you guys get what i'm saying <clears throat> so that's the only thing there was never a guy going oh it's, you know i found this book in the desert called you know fred <laughs> the book of fred and uh you know it's i think it's scripture we should put it in the bible no that's all lives in someone's brain that didn't happen historically that never occurred we're dealing with the same books. You guys get where I'm... You're picking up when I'm laying down? <clears throat> so let's look at this shining of light. Reformation, 1517, beginning. The Reformation of the 16th century is next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. 
marks the end of the Middle Ages, the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement and gave Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. Gets us back on track. The age of the Reformation bears a strong resemblance uh, to the first century. Both are rich beyond any other period in great and good men, important facts, permanent results. Both contain the ripe fruits of of uh, proceeding and the fruitful germs of succeeding ages. <clears throat> they are turning points in the history of mankind. They are felt in their effects to this day and will be felt to the end of time. They refashioned the world from the innermost depths of the human soul in its contact, contact with the infinite being. They were ushered in by the providential occurrence or concurrence of events and tendencies of thought. The way for Christianity was prepared by Moses and the prophets, the dispersion of the Jews, <clears throat> the conquest of Alexander the Great, the language and literature of Greece, the arms and laws of Rome, the decay of idolatry, the spread of skepticism, the aspirations after new revelation, the hopes of a coming Messiah. The Reformation was preceded and necessitated by the corruptions of the papacy, the decline of monasticism and scholastic theology, the growth of mysticism, the revival of letters, the resurrection of the Greek and Roman classics, the invention of the printing press, the discovery of the new world, the publication of the Greek uh, New Testament, the general spirit of inquiry, the striving after national independence and personal freedom. In both centuries, we hear the creative voice of the Almighty calling light out of darkness. So as all of those things are coming together, it is perpetuating this great outburst of light again in time. Now, prior to the invention of the printing press, how do we make copies? Yeah. With a pen and paper. So, of all the notes you ever wrote in high school, how many do you still have? Yep. You don't have any? <laughs> yeah. What about letters? you keep any old letters? I just know. <coughs> so, we got... Well, your high school was like two years ago, so yeah. it's a little easier. <laughs> Uh, Kathy and I still have letters we wrote when I was in boot camp, which is like 90 years ago. And, uh, you know, I don't know how long they'll go, but it won't be long after me and Kathy are gone. Those, you know, the kids might read them before they throw them away, but, or use them to light a fire, but <coughs> eventually those things are going to go. But what we see in the providence of God is God delivering the transmission of the text all the way to the time of the printing press. Now, with the printing press, it's much easier to make copies, yeah? Copies are going to be a lot easier. And you had really honorable men who were faithful in copying the Scripture all the way through the Middle Middle Ages. You know, guys who were faithful. You find things like uh, Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, and you find them in, in monasteries that just sitting on a shelf somewhere that... You know, whoa, look what we found, you know, that the monks used to use. Now they, they're they coming up finding these texts that enable men <clears throat> to then take those texts and develop for us the same scripture we have sitting before us, either on iPad or in paper form, all the same. <clears throat> so now the Word of God delivered 
is going to continue to be able to be delivered. Now, the idea of wiping out the Word of God is just ridiculous, right? How are you going to get rid of it? It's everywhere. It's, just, there's, it's everywhere. I, I myself have a hundred copies on my computer. So, I could print them out myself. I've got a printer back there. Hit print. Man, it'd be a lot easier for me than it was for those early guys, huh? So, just in, we're just going to look at a couple of guys and their view of Scripture. Martin Luther, um, you know, often called the father of the Reformation, <coughs> on the origin of Scripture. Um, he believed that Scripture had its foundation from God, that he used men, um, and so pretty much had the standard uh, belief in inspiration of the text coming from God through men to you and I. He saw the Bible as the Word of God. Uh, he quotes, This is exactly as it is with God. His Word is so much like Himself that the Godhead is holy in it, and he who has the Word has the whole Godhead. His point is, Scripture is what we need. We need to give back to the Word, right? This was, this was what spurned the, the uh, Reformation. So what you'll see, <clears throat> Bethany, as we look at this, is you're going to see this flip now where we got so off track in the medieval period, now you're going to see things come back to a solid foundation on the Word. Nice. Uh, he believed the Bible is divinely authoritative. Having come from God, the Scriptures have divine authority. This is what he said, We hope that everyone will agree with the decisions that the doctrines of men must be forsaken and the Scriptures retained. we got to get rid of all this monkey business we've been putting together and we need to get back to the Word of God. Everybody tracking? He believed that the that the Bible was infallible and inerrant. <clears throat> um, he, he, I have a couple of quotes here. Whoever is so bold that he ventures to accuse God of fraud and deception in a single word and does so willfully again and again after he has been warned and instructed once or twice will likewise certainly venture to accuse God of fraud and deception in, in all his words. Therefore, it is true, absolutely without exception, that everything is believed or nothing is believed. It's all true or it's all got to go. So, which is still the affirmation of the church today. The Word of God, you can't cut and paste. It's all or nothing. <clears throat> so, if you're in, then you need to be all in, right? And allow the Bible that place of authority. <clears throat> the Bible is a revelation of Christ. It reveals who Christ is. Uh, he said, Dismiss your own opinions and feelings and think of the Scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored in order that you may find the divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. What's he saying? He, and, and then he goes on to say, what you're going to find there in those scriptures, in the swaddling clause of the, the verses before you, is the Christ, Jesus, in the pages of scripture. His point is, look, man, this is <clears throat> the Bible. The Bible reveals who Christ is. The Bible is noble, holy. It's what we need. This begins, like I said, the big reformation that changes Moves the church from darkness back toward light. Make sense? John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. They overlap. <clears throat> Calvin believed the Bible 
uh, again, just like Luther, found its ultimate source in God, uh, that the very words of the Bible came from the mouth of God through the instruments of men. Uh, he believed that the words were God's very word. That just means he believes in plenary inspiration, that God actually uh, wanted the words that were utilized. He said, we owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to God uh, because it has proceeded from Him alone and has nothing belonging to man mixed with it. The law and the prophets uh, are not a doctrine delivered according to the will or pleasure of men, but dictated by the Holy Spirit. So moving again toward the authority of the Scripture. <clears throat> the transmission of the text, he said this, there is this difference between the apostles and their successors. They were sure and authentic amuensis of the Holy Spirit. That means secretaries. And therefore, their writings are being regarded as oracles of God. Whereas others have no office than to teach what has been delivered. So the apostles are done. <clears throat> now those who come afterwards, their role is to teach what the apostles delivered. How many times do you hear Paul say the same thing? Hold fast, sound doctrine. Old fast sound rock. Teach the things that I taught you. <coughs> so, again, we we see this. He believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. So long as your mind entertains any misgivings as to the certainty of the Word of God, its authority will be weak and dubious. That, that bears a little consideration. So long as you don't think the Word of God's quite right, if I erode your faith in the Word of God then what I have done is I've removed its ability to be authority in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's really the situation much of the world finds themselves in today. I don't know why I should listen to the Word of God. Why, why does that matter? It's just a bunch of books men put together, right? We just looked at all the church councils that they voted on, remember? Where they voted where what books should be in the Bible? No. You didn't notice that? Not right? true. <clears throat> Ulrich Zwingli, 1484, said this, the articles and opinions uh, below, I, Ulrich Zwingli, confess to have preached in the worthy city of Zurich as based upon the scriptures which are called inspired by God, and I offer to protect and conquer with the said articles. And, there, <clears throat> and where I have now not now correctly understood said scriptures, I shall allow myself to be taught better, but only... From the scripture. What had authority? Scripture. scripture. So you see the swing back to what do we got what do we need to cling to? What do we need to hold to? What is authoritative for the church? That which was delivered by the apostles in the beginning is what is being regained again at the Reformation. Make sense? <coughs> John Knox uh, in Scotland established Calvinism as the official affiliation uh, of Scotland believed in the inspiration and authority of his scripture, as did his mentor. It was Knox's disciples who trained a guy named King James. You ever heard of him? Mm -hmm. Who is going to uh, develop <clears throat> the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. Francis Turretin. We believe that the word contained in these canonical books, these books, now at the time of Frank Turretin, you have had a council, church council, that says these 27 and not any other. So that has occurred for the Protestants. Okay. By the time you get to the 1600s, I think, I want to say 1590, 
<coughs> is was the council that did that. Um, I don't think I have that council in here. I think I just did the the councils that were that were uh, uh, agreed councils of the church, and the Protestant council was not acknowledged by the Catholic Church, so they don't see that authority as authoritative. <laughs> but anyway, we believe that the word contained in these canonical books has proceeded from God, receives its authority from who? <coughs> who? From God, right? God gives authority to the Scripture, not man. We God didn't need us to say, yeah, you know what, this is Scripture. He didn't need us. He delivered it through men, it was utilized in that way from the beginning all the way to 1590. That's a long time, right? To function as authoritative, even in a church that was a little cattywampus. Still dealing with the same books. Everybody tracking? Mm -hmm. Still dealing with the same books, same issues. <clears throat> Received his authority from him alone and not from men. This confession was published, somewhat modified in a bridge form of the Waldenses. A brief confession of faith of the Reformed churches of the Piedmont in 1655. Uh, then there's three church councils here. Basically, these councils are called to try to stop what's going on with the Reformation. <clears throat> the Council of Trent was called the counter of the Reformation. Trent declared many of the characteristic doctrines of Roman Catholicism, including the equal validity of tradition and scripture, the seven sacraments, transubstantiation, Good works uh, necessary for justification, purgatory, indulgences, which is sold forgiveness, right? The veneration of saints and images, prayer to the dead, and the canonicity of 11 apocryphal books. Now you have books being recognized. This is the Catholic Church recognizing. Why are they recognized? Why are they adding books? What do you think? I think because like they're not this reformation went on, but they're trying to hold on to the people they're still believing to keep them growing in that faith instead of going over. They want to have a distinction, right? Mm -hmm. They don't. What they don't want to say is we're both using the same Bible, but we're doing things totally different. So, but when did they do that? Not until right fifteen forty five, fifteen sixty three. They added the Apocrypha. Until then, the Apocrypha was never utilized. wasn't a part. It would, it would be utilized just like we utilize it today. Historical documents, uh, things that can let us into the mind of people of that day. Right? We, we look at what they write and how they write it. The concept of purgatory, by the way, is apocryphal. A lot of the weirdness that will come out of... You'll say, where do they get this doctrine? comes out of apocryphal writings. Mm -hmm. You know, concepts. But... They do it to make a distinction between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. So you talk to a Catholic who knows, he'll say, our Bibles are different. Well, the only difference is that you have the Apocrypha. And you don't even have the Apocrypha in the regular part of the Bible. It's not just mixed together. The Apocrypha is its own special little section. <laughs> That's just like any of them. It's Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. They all are tricky with the Bible. But then they have their own little extra. Yeah. That looks like your, a Bible. <clears throat> you got to have your own special scripture, yeah. right? Because if you give authority to the word and you use the word, then you're only going to end up in one place. Yeah. So the first council of the Vatican 
You have Vatican I, called by Pope Pius IX, denounced pantheism, materialism, and atheism. It pronounced papal infallibility, so now the Pope can never be wrong. Wow. Rejecting Antonius of Florence's formula that the Pope, using the council and seeking for help of the universal church, cannot err. But he said the Pope, but now, nope, nope, the Pope instead, if he sits ex cathedra, which means on the throne, if he sits on the throne, the Pope cannot be wrong. Why? Because the Pope has become the vicar. What's the vicar of Christ mean? The replacement. He is Christ on earth. That's what the Pope is. Christ on earth. And Christ on earth can't be wrong. So, <clears throat> Even though he was appointed by man. That's even right. though he was appointed <laughs> by man. And <clears throat> it doesn't make any sense. And we can even go in church history and say, okay, here's two popes both talking out of the wrong sides of their mouth saying opposite things. One of them is wrong, which would prove that there is no such thing as infallibility. So, and you take it to a Catholic apologist and he will say, well, this Pope wasn't really speaking ex cathedra. What do you mean? When he said it, he was. Well, we can tell now because it's wrong. We know he wasn't speaking at cathedral. That, that is a great way to be able to... It just took you a thousand years to know he was wrong. However, everybody at the time when he was talking was convinced that he could never be wrong. <laughs> right. <clears throat> the Second Council of the Vatican in 1962, Vatican II... Attempted ecumenicity, you know what it means, mm -hmm. with Eastern Orthodox and Protestants, wants to make peace with everyone, <clears throat> instituted ritualistic changes, which means they did mass in multiple languages. Uh, they pronounced reform, declared inclusivism for separated brethren, and accepted salvation for people who are sincere. So if you're sincere, you can still be saved. A great way to make peace among the nations is just, just to tell everybody they're all going to go to heaven and it's all okay and, and none of this makes any difference. But I can't do that and maintain that the Bible is authoritative. Is the Bible authoritative today in Catholic churches? Some Catholic churches hold... I mean, it's just like anything. You can't just say every Baptist church is like this. You actually got to go sit and see. Because you can have some pretty liberal Baptist churches and mm -hmm. some pretty uh, pretty conservative Baptist churches holding fast to the Word of God. <coughs> Same way in Catholicism, but it, what it doesn't do is deliver us from the doctrinal issues that we just were looking at, right, that they have some things that uh, just don't make sense and they still hold fast to that and the idea that tradition is equal to scripture church tradition and scripture are equal and when the church does best is when the church recognizes the authority of scripture so kind of as we've been looking through some of this historical aspect of what we've been talking about i just I just want you to see that the, the message that somebody may tell you, well, this is how the Bible happened. That's not how the Bible happened. Let's just take a little cruise down you know, memory lane. Let's talk about <clears throat> what was functioning in reality, not just what our interpretation of, of history might be. 
And if enough people say the same lie over and over again, what happens? People start to believe it's true, right? But the reality is what we see is when the apostles laid down their pen and mailed their letter, that letter was authoritative from that date to today. <coughs> and it was authoritative by the providence of God. That God delivered to us the word he intended us to have. So, <clears throat> I don't believe there's another book somewhere somebody's going to find to add the Paul's third letter to, to the church at Corinth or, <coughs> or some, some, something like that. We know there are letters, right? There are, there are books that aren't contained in the Bible. Why not? Because God in his providence didn't transmit those books to us. Right? We have thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the books we have. None of anything else. So that's why those don't come in. It's not like we have five copies only of Third Corinthians. And so we say, well, we're not going to put it in. No, we don't have any. God in his providence wanted that in his word. It would have functioned as word from the minute it was delivered. It would have been spread. It would have been copied and would have came to us. Because that's how the providence of God works. He brings the word to us. And we watch. As that word becomes authoritative again in the 1500s, what changes? Now light begins to dawn. You see a revivals pouring out across the land. People getting saved. And that same move that was begun then still continues today. <clears throat> you still have the same battle though. Right? Between whether or not men are going to treat the word of God as authoritative or not. 